today is from Exodus, chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of the slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. And together we pray. Glory Glory be to the the Father, and and to to the the Son, and and to to the Holy Spirit, Spirit, as as it was was in the beginning, beginning, is now, now, and and ever shall be, world without without end. end. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. All right. Hey, as I mentioned uh, last week, we're into this book of Exodus. And Exodus um, is book two of a five-book series written by um, or attributed to the writings of Moses. So it's book number two. So there's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay, so it's book number two. And uh, what we find ourselves into in book number two of this um, kind of series of five is a story about how the family of Abraham. The family of Abraham you see in the um, book of Genesis was going to be the agent through which God was going to restore creation back to its Genesis-like state. But here we find ourselves in book number two. And uh, actually, um, Abraham's family is in Egypt. And what that means is they're in slavery, and in fact, they're under a threat of um, genocide. And that threat actually creates a threat to God's plan to uh, restore the world. So here we go. So we're in the beginning of this. This is like the Empire Strikes Back in the big Star Wars series. Is this, is this registering for you? Are you, are, you, are you with me? Okay, that's great. So what Exodus wants to do, though, is it wants to make these little connections to make sure we don't uh, drop the ball and we have a sense of actually how the way that Exodus uh, connects to Genesis. And it forms this verbal linkage by repeating um, uh, common phrases and uh, common themes. And so, for example, in our reading today, um, we have in Exodus, the Israelites groan in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help rose up uh, to God. And this story mirrors a story in the book of Genesis. The book is the the story around the murder of Cain and Abel. And the Lord said to Abel, what have you, uh, Lord said to Abel, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from uh, the ground. And so what you have here in the beginning pages of the Bible and in the first couple of sentences of the um, book of Genesis is a theme around God's, I mean, sorry, the the theme of injustice and how God will respond to that. And this is a theme that begins in Genesis and rolls through Exodus and actually finds its way right to the very um, end of the book of Revelation. You see, justice or God's justice is not God metering out um, kind of um, uh, annoyance uh, or anger randomly assigned to various uh, human misdemeanors. No, actually, justice is about the way that God is going to restore the world uh, to rights. So this is the story that unfolds and rolls its way uh, all the way through. And the important point here is what we see is actually that this, this 
cry for justice is one of the things that really uh, grabs uh, the attention of God. Where injustice turns, where oppression, uh, where injustice kind of turns down the volume of human oppression in the air of human beings, uh, injustice actually turns up the voice of oppression in the ear of God. Nothing um, provokes God to action more in the Bible than the sight or the sound of uh, injustice. So we're, um, it's easy for us to obviously kind of sometimes lose the connection between spirituality or the sense of God's righteousness and justice. Because in many ways in English we talk about uh, God's righteousness and, or um, uh, you know, spirituality as if it's kind of like an inward trade. It's something that's happening on the inside. And justice or social justice is something that's actually happening on uh, the outside. But what you get in the Bible is actually these two things actually happen uh, together. They coincide together. So, for example, you get this picture in, uh, in the Psalms where God's justice and righteousness are actually descriptions of who's got, who God is. So Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go uh, before you. So the descriptor of justice, or, this, or sorry, the descriptor of righteousness usually speaks of God's holiness, doesn't it? It usually speaks of God's uh, compassion. It usually speaks of God's trustworthiness and compassion and mercy. And the descriptor of justice usually is kind of, cons- you know, it's about God's concern for the imbalance or the systemic imbalance that gets seen in society. It's about God's concern for the marginalized, the exiled, those who are victims of war, those who are unwell, those who are emotionally unwell, those who have suffered loss, the the groaning of creation. It's normally the external things we associate uh, with the idea of God's uh, justice. So in English, God is described as outwardly just and inwardly righteous. And that is the case until you look under the hood and see actually that God's justice is, the word for that is tzedakah. And if you look under the hood, the word for righteousness is sudaka. God's justice and God's righteousness are not just two ideas that God thinks are really good. They're actually part of the same tree. They're part of the same thing. You can't separate them out. The God's the root of justice, so the root of righteousness is connected to the fruit of of uh, justice. You see, the just the cry of justice that came through the Me Too, the Black Lives Matter um, movement, is actually inseparable from the root of secularism, which places a price tag on human beings and the sacredness of life that gets turned into consumer goods. The unjust labor practices, often associated with the tech sector, is actually deeply connected to a way of being whereby we need to kind of, ha- we have to have a drawer completely full of electronic gadgets, where it's the kind of person who is anxious to be on top of the uh, gadget game. The decline of human connection or the health of human connection is often inseparable from the practice of having a worth or a sense of worth uh, connected to praise and appraisal of others or, you know, numbers on Facebook or, you know, know, on Instagram hearts. These are these two ideas that are connected together. So the external fruit of justice is inseparable from the 
internal or the spiritual roots of what constitutes good living or what constitutes uh, righteousness. And you see this dynamic of uh, seeing, you see this dynamic get played out in the Exodus story, which begins with Pharaoh saying this, come let us deal craftily with them or they will increase and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. So out of fear, Pharaoh enslaves a whole generation and a whole nation in order to ensure that the scarcity that might come because these people basically take off and they're the economic base which fuels the military complex of securing the safety of uh, Pharaoh's regime. And so with that fear in his heart, that fear um, up top of his mind, Pharaoh um, begins a way of brutal injustice, of enslaving. This is the way of grasping. This is the way of actually um, perpetuating injustice. And the motion here is the, the grasping or the way of the snake. This is the, this was the idea that was put before Adam and Eve, that they could construct life on their own terms, and the result of that was also uh, injustice. We often don't hear about this much today, but there is a deep connection between the ideas of social justice and um, you know, our spiritual formation. Well, what we often don't hear today is that, in fact, you know, by a number of different metrics, uh, it's actually we're ne we've never lived in a better state of the world. The reality is that actually hunger is down, it's never been lower than before. Um, the access to clean water has never been better. Education and health outcomes have never been higher. Global literacy has also never been higher. The rates of starvation, as I mentioned, they've never been lower. You know, in the 1960s, basically 50, 000, uh, 50 out of every 100,000 people died of starvation. Absolutely terrible. In 1992, that dropped to 2.6 people per every 100,000. And uh, today, that number is actually uh, far, far lower. And, you know, as the world population tips into 8 billion, um, as it has done over the last uh, year, you know, the calculations are that, in fact, um, our food production output is 2,700 calories per person. Now, when you think about um, the average adult consumes or needs basically between two and two and a half thousand calories uh, to do well on, what that means is, in fact, there's more than enough to go around. Doesn't it? The problem is not one of production. The problem is the one of distribution. And of course, that can be due to a number of different factors. We might think, well, of course, that's you know, the case you know, because of what's happened in Yemen. This is the case because of what's happened in the Ukraine. But the reality is the actual problem of distribution is because a number of countries actually stockpile uh, food, and particularly uh, grain. Can you see the problem here, right? The problem here is that the, the kind of the posture and the practice of grasping reinforces a narrative of scarcity and creates the illusion that there's actually not enough to go around. 
and for Israel. You know, they got out of Egypt, but man alive. That took just a few chapters, and it took the rest of the whole book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy to get the Egypt out of them. You know, after you've lived in an environment like this, the environment of slavery, this environment of injustice, uh, for over 400 years, that stuff seems to seep into your system. And it's hard to imagine your life or imagine a world uh, differently. You know, I get treated like a slave, I am a slave, I live like a slave, therefore I must be a slave. I see that there's not enough to go around. I live like there's not enough to go around. It must be the case that there's not enough to go around. I'm told that Pharaoh is the centre of the world. It seems like everything revolves around him. The narrative that we get around Pharaoh being having the last say in the world actually must be true. There's a way, uh, you know, this is the way that the, just the world works. We see it working this way, we expect it to work this way, and this is what we experience. And slavery of the vulnerable and the death of children are just the brutal but, you know, collateral damage of this means to an end. And here's the key practice that actually broke this power of scarcity that was deeply ingrained into the life and the imagination of uh, the Israelites. There's a It was this practice that broke this posture of grasping and attempting to run life on our own terms. And it was this practice of just stopping. It was the practice of Sabbath, of resting, and just enjoying life, enjoying life as a gift and not as something that you had to earn your participation in. The practice of Sabbath was the key way in which Israel was to click out of a narrative of scarcity and into a narrative of God's uh, generosity. Now, but here's the super interesting thing about this practice for Israel. It was not only tzedakah for the person practicing it. It actually had a wider scope than this. What you see is actually that the practice of tzedakah was not only good for the individual person practicing it, but it was actually good for a whole range of uh, spheres of social influence. Have a look at this from uh, Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy 5, we get the, um, the commandment around the Sabbath here. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And watch this. On it you shall, do, you shall not do any work. Neither you nor your son or your daughter nor your male or female servants, nor your ox or don- your donkey or any of your animals, nor any foreign resi- foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest. As you do, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm." You see, the goal of spiritual practices, the goal of the life of the Spirit, the goal of like learning this way of Jesus, the goal of being here on Sunday, the goal of actually, you know, going to youth group, the goal of being a part of um, a formational uh, community, is not just for us personally to experience, you know, the wonderful life of God on the inside and become a great Anglican. I mean, of course it's that, right? But it's actually even more than that. I mean, it's hard to believe there's more than that. But there is. It's actually way more uh, than that. You know, we're actually about this 
learning to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. This is a practice that we're learning. Our spiritual formation is not just for our own good, but it's actually a practice for the good of others. It's for uh, social justice. And what I'm suggesting today is this kind of, I want to just, what we're doing here is we're drilling into this practice of Sabbath that we observed with Israel, is I'm just inviting us into having a little experiment with Sabbath. Just have a little experiment. And by that, what I mean is, like, it's an extended period of time that happens once a week where you just kind of you stop work and you intentionally lean into God's presence, you intentionally lean into hanging out with your friends and just celebrating the goodness of God and experiencing life as a gift, not experiencing life as something that you've earned and you've dragged yourself uh, into. And when I say experiment with that, what I mean is you've got to think about your life, all the details. You know, are, are you married? Are you single? Have you got kids? Don't you have kids? Are you a shift worker? Are you um, working overseas? What is your, you know, what does all the details of your life mean? And then into that, you want to negotiate a time whereby you can have just a space, a dedicated space once a week to enjoy God to enjoy God's creation and to enjoy those around you. And you just got to start small. Um, that's what I'm suggesting that we do. But the importance of that is that we get to experience something of this resurrection life, this life lived on God's terms, this life lived as a gift. We get to experience a small part of that now, and that gives us hope uh, into uh, the future. You know, so what I'm saying today is like, think about. How, think about your circle of influence. Like think, you, you, might be, um, you might be a teenager at school, you might be at university, you might be at home, you might be looking after kids. I don't know, there's a kind of circle of influence we all have. The goal of spiritual formation is to be an agent and a carrier of the power and presence of the kingdom of God uh, into that sphere of influence. And here's the thing, do you know what? It's really hard to love your neighbor as yourself. It's really hard to actually be empathetic. It's really hard to be present. It's really hard to be a great listener when you're exhausted. Like, you're going to be terrible at that, you know? But actually, the, we are actually more alive to people. We're more empathetic. We're more open to hearing people and being with people when we're not exhausted, right? It's just the simple mass of the, of the equation. Similarly, if you, uh, um, perhaps your sphere of influence is slightly uh, wider. Perhaps you're um, a person who has to lead an organization or you're organizing a team. You know, one of the scary things about actually being a leader of an organization is that um, your practices and what you do actually becomes the practices and sets the expectation of the organization you're a part of, which is actually a bit, you know, it's a bit freak, freaky if you're a kind of bumbling vicar. So, um, and the reality is also what we see in leadership is that actually exhausted leaders create exhausting organizations. It's just, you can't, it's just like a law. That happens. Exhausting, exhausted leaders inevitably create uh, exhausting uh, organisations. And you know what we? What the, I think Adam Grant's got the best stuff basically that's uh, around on this, which is basically really thinking about how does rest um, become a pattern of life in your workplace. He says that you know in toxic organisations you burn out and then you take a rest too, and like you know just to get yourself together and get some therapy. And kind of reasonably decent organisations, you um, when you're exhausted you have a break in order to uh, refuel. 
in really great organizations, you take a break to recharge, to go again. This is what I'm saying about this practice of Sabbath. It's a, really a great way in which we can be alive to God and be alive to other people and be agents through actually God can bring influence and presence into people's lives. Look, at its heart, the very thing that changes people's lives, the very thing that brings um, radical change to our own lives, and the, thing, the very thing that people need in their life is God's presence. It's God's presence. Um, we can't go back to it, but it's always God's presence that brings liberation. It's not just coming up with a better system. It's not coming up with a better form of democracy. It's actually God's presence that makes a change. And when we learn to live with God's presence, we can free ourselves from the expectations of living in a system where our economy and our political structure is trying to turn us into a certain kind of person. We actually, we can live again as people, not as slaves, but actually as truly people made in God's image. This is the birthright of every human being, to be not slaves, not dictated to, not have our life shaped by these external circumstances, but to be free people, people whose lives and identity are shaped around the very presence of God because we're made in the very image uh, of God. So what I'm encouraging you to do is to have a crack at giving Sabbath a go. Don't overdo it. Don't put too much pressure on yourself. Intensity is not a spiritual gift or a fruit of the Spirit, okay? Because you want to feel your way into it easily and slowly. You have to taste the good of it, to taste the good of the freedom that comes of living life as a real gift and not as, a, you know, just spinning the wheel uh, to make things work. We good? Let's stand together.